0: Please stand in reverence for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love, and a spirit of gentleness? This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here, and it's an honor for me to share the Word of God with you. Let's pray before we begin. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation depends on our true understanding of your Holy Word, grant to all of us that our hearts, being free from worldly things, may hear and understand your Holy Word with all diligence and faith, that we may rightly understand your gracious will. Cherish it and live by it with all our hearts, to your praise and honor through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> um. There are some things like there are some scary things that I have gone through in my life, uh, but I would think that uh, the scariest thing, and I, I've gone through pretty scary things, like I've come home bloody. Um, to my wife when her tears are all well, like her eyes are all welled up with tears and things like that. But I would say, now that I've gone through all these things, uh, the two things that really kind of scare me or gravely concern me, and these are two things that literally, quite literally keep me up at night, are number one, the pulpit, and number two, the people of this church. And so, sharing that, Uh, I think that this is something that, you know, I would like you to know as a pastor, this is how I feel, of course, but there is a reverence that our church uh, should have for the reading and the preaching of God's word. Uh, This is something that anybody who stands on this pulpit should also come in fear and reverence with. And this is something that we see that Paul also directs and addresses his church uh, with this kind of heart as well. You know, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth to not only show them the errors and the problems that they faced, but also to face those problems head on. In other words, the church was being attacked with disunity, with pride, with sexual immorality, with the abuse of gifts, and so on. It was being attacked by sin, And we see Paul here attacking those problems. And a minister's duty primarily is also to attack those problems that the church would face. And as we have seen in the past, the Apostle Paul uses metaphors to describe himself and the roles that he is to play for the church as a leader. In chapter 3, verse 5, we saw that he called himself a diakonos, or a servant, where we get the word deacon. In chapter 3, verse 6, he compared himself to a planter or a farmer. In verse 10 of that chapter, the chief architect or the master builder. In chapter 4, verse 1, a slave and a steward. These are also what an elder and a pastor and a leader of the church is. These are, there are other metaphors in the Bible that is used to describe a church elder or leader. For instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7, a preacher and a teacher. A preacher is a herald, or someone that proclaims the gospel, someone that goes out and shouts the good news. That's what the elder does. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20, they're also called to be ambassadors of Christ. It says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. But not only that, we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, he also compares himself with motherhood, spiritual mothers. In verse 7 it says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This word gentle is describing extreme gentleness. Nursing mothers that match the gentleness of her infant. The nursing mother is able to connect with her infant in a way no one else can through this gentle protection and care. I had mentioned an example earlier in one of my sermons of a child who would only say daddy as her first words, daddy, 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 until she was in pain, then mommy would be the only word coming out of her mouth. There is a deep connection that an infant has from the womb of its mother from its inception. And there is a profound sense of grief and mourning when the mother experiences an early loss through miscarriage or something similar. Paul is able to relate to the church using many of these metaphors on himself, but for their benefit. And in today's passage, we come to Paul using the metaphor of a father. And this passage is chock full of descriptives on being a spiritual father. In verse 15, when Paul calls himself their father, it calls to attention the intimacy between himself and and the church, there really is an undeniable intimacy between the preacher and the church that Paul is able to articulate in this letter to the Corinthian church. And so this message will be on what it means to be a spiritual father. And this is not just something that is to be applied to me as the preacher, but it's what I will contend It's to be applied to every single one of you as well, as ministers of the word, as ministers of Christ. You are all also called to be spiritual fathers. This is something Paul was to the church in Corinth. It is what an elder or pastor is to the church now. And I will contend, like I said before, something that every believer needs to be a spiritual father. In the earlier passage, Paul had spoken rather harshly to the church using even sarcasm and irony to prove a point. What's that point? The pride of the Corinthian church was diametrically opposed to the humility called to Christ's disciples. But here was the church in Corinth divided into sects Paul, Apollos, Cephas, and even Christ, as if Christ's body was divided. And this is a big problem. One of primacy in Paul's concerns and addresses is the first thing he addresses, and it goes for four chapters. And this harshness that he had previously done in the passage before would have brought anyone to embarrassment and perhaps even shame. But then he continues to write, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. But Paul didn't write these things to bring shame or dishonor upon them. His purpose was to admonish. But admonish as what? As his children. So the first characteristic of a spiritual father is someone who admonishes. Admonishes from the word, nutheteo. Nutheteo is to rebuke, but with the purpose of correction. It's to rebuke, to correct them, to bring them back into the right path. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instruction is from nuthesia. This is a cognate noun, which just means it's a word with the same root used to convey a father's duty to his children. The same root as what? Nutheteo, admonish. This instruction and this admonition is the role of a father. And the point of admonishment, as we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 isn't to paralyze the child with trauma, but its purpose is to instruct them how. Instruct them toward change. A spiritual father, when he sees sin, needs to go from shame to correction in behavior. It's not simply punishment to punish. It's not because you're exasperated, you extend that exasperation to your children, but when you see a sin, correction and love takes place so that you would also see change from that sin in your child. This exact word, this exact Greek word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament where? In 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 13. And it says, And I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. That word restrain is the Greek word nuthateo. In chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, we see that this is talking about Eli. And Eli was the high priest of Israel at the time, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas would abuse their authority as the sons of the high priest. And what they would do is they would take whatever portion they wanted from the offerings. So as a matter of speaking, if I were to relate it to today, if you gave your offering, it's like Hophni and Phinehas would just dip their hands in the offering and take whatever they wanted for themselves. And if you didn't let them take from the offering that you brought to God, they would even use force to take it, thereby treating the offering of the Lord with contempt. Not only that, they were also sleeping with the women that were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now all this was going on, and Hophni and Phineas were doing this regularly, apparently, and when Eli, the high priest, the father, heard of it, first of all, The problem is bad when you need to find out about your children secondhand, right? It goes, when Eli heard of it. However, I think this is worse. After Eli hears about the things that his sons were doing, he says to them, why do you do such things? And if that sounds weak to you, it's because it is weak. If you knew the severity of the problem, I just told you exactly what they were doing. This is crazy. This is insane. If you knew the severity of the problem that your children were doing, you wouldn't weakly be asking why. I would think that you would in the very least yell what, not why. So why did Eli... Do what he did and not restrain his sons. There's a prophet that would come to Eli in the end of chapter 2 and also ask him why. In verse 29, this prophet would say, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? Honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. He had put his sons above God. His actions and inactions proved it. That's why a spiritual father restrains. A spiritual father admonishes his children. That is the first characteristic we see as we start this passage on being a spiritual father. Number two, we see in the same verse that Paul isn't simply admonishing his children, but what kind of children? Beloved children. Beloved children. Beloved is from the word agapetas, which is from the word we should all be familiar with. Agape. Agape isn't just any form of love. It isn't just the highest form of love, as you may have heard it. It is the deepest kind of love that you can have towards someone. It's the love that God has for his children. Agape. This, is, this isn't just some kind of phileo love that you would have toward your brothers or sisters or your friends or your, even your close friends. That's phileo love. You feel connected. You want to be with them. You want to spend the rest of your life with them. That's phileo love. And this is what a lot of recent college grads face. And all of you, I assume, have gone to college, or most of you, or have gone to some kind of form of growing up with like peers, and one of the things that college students face is exactly that, like, ah, oh, I want you guys to be my friends forever, and, you know, and then you guys, I don't know, make friendship bracelets and things like that, and I was exactly the same, uh, but that, it's been a, a little while since my college days, like last year, but in, in, in all seriousness, that's what you want. That's flail love, but that's not agape love. The agape love that is being described in the Bible is a sacrificial love that is long-suffering. Agape love is long-suffering, meaning even if you don't get anything back, I love you. You might cook a meal for a loved one. And imagine that you really labored over this meal. You know, you think about the ingredients that you're going to put in, T, L, and C, right? And then you continue to labor over what, what and how this person might enjoy it. And then finally you present it. This person that you meant it for eats it, scarfs it down, doesn't even look at you, gets up and leaves. Do you still love that person? Or did your love for them get knocked down a few pegs? Like you lost five points right there, buddy. Agape love is a pouring out of yourself even if you would get nothing in return. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, this is what Paul says to the Corinthian church again. Here for the third time I am ready to come to you and I will not be a burden for I seek not what is yours but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? The sacrificial love is a love that parents should have for their children and the love that Paul has for the church. It is a love that characterizes that of a spiritual father. It's a love that struggles to understand his children. It's a love that struggles to fulfill their hopes and desires and dreams. It's a love that has you lay down yourself for the benefit of the other. Enjoy. He goes, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Number three, a spiritual father begets begets. It's an old English word. I don't think we use this word in common language today. But in verse 15, for though you have have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The word countless is from the word 10,000. It's hyperbole. You could have 10,000 or countless guides or guardians. These were slaves or servants that would help take care of the child. They would take him to school and back, attend to his needs, and even help with the homework. This is not who Paul says he is. He says, I am not one of those guardians. He says that he is their father, for I became your father. If you see the end of that verse, I became your father. This is translated from four Greek words. Four Greek words, and you see here five English words. For I became your father. For I, I. I is from the word ego. Ego means emphasis on me. So for I, and then you. And then the last fourth word is genao. Genao is what's translated became father. Okay? Genao means to give birth or to cause to happen. This is where we get the word genesis. Genesis in Greek, which we now anglicize to say genesis, right? In the beginning, genesis. Gennao is where we see the word became father. And so how does, how does this genao happen? In Christ Jesus through the gospel. In Christ Jesus through the gospel. A father is someone who has produced a child. I can be a husband. I can be the head of my household. But if I don't have a kid, I am not a father. Sad? Yes. Because there are some Christians who have never produced a child. This means they have never led anyone to Christ. Wait, I thought only God begets children. I thought only God begets saved people. Didn't you say in your sermons before that only God can change the heart? Yes, only God can change or turn the sinner from his ways and turn him back to God. Only God can bring life to a dead corpse, someone who, who is dead in their trespasses, and bring them back to life. So what does it mean to lead someone to Christ? In James chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of his firstfruits of creatures. God gives life How? By the word of truth. By, when we went over this in the catechism, but we'll go over it again. God gives us life by the word of truth. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We have been given life through the word of God. Also, and this is, Basically a review of Song's Catechism. In John chapter 3, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When there is a rebirth, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we are born again by the Word of God through the Spirit of God, but all these things are through, and here it is, human Agency. It's through human agents. I mentioned earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, how God sends us as ambassadors or agents. It's through human agency God does this work. Jesus Himself tells us to pray for this in this regard. Right? Jesus Himself tells us to pray for this in this aspect. When he saw and we, re- we went over this in Matthew 9. When he saw the helpless and the harassed, it was like looking at sheep without a shepherd. What did he ask his disciples to pray for in Matthew? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to what? Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, for his spirit to work? No, no. This is what he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is why we continue to pray that God send forth Workers. This is the exact same ask that I had of this church. We, are, we, have, um, we said we had record-breaking numbers of people signing up for smaller groups, which I am so encouraged by, but we need more laborers. We need more female leaders to step up. We need more leaders to step up. This is what we are to pray for because God works through human agency just before his ascension he would give his disciples the great commission go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you god does do the saving but he uses the human agent this is something that we have been commissioned to do on this earth while we still have breath As long as you are breathing, this commission is given to you as disciples of Christ. As long as you are alive, your commission as disciples is to make disciples. And this is precisely what a father does. He begets. Life reproduces. You learned this in Biology 101, right? Life reproduces. Spiritual life also reproduces. And what a joy it was for us to witness last week a brother of ours share his testimony in faith in Jesus Christ last week. This is what the church is to do. We are to be a begetting station like a maternity ward. It's supposed to be a place where we see people being birthed all the time. And this is what we ought to pray for. God does it but he uses human agency. Pray that God send laborers. Number four. I urge you then be imitators of me. A spiritual father is an example for his children. Imitators is from Mimetai, and Mimetai is where we get the word mimic, right? It's translated as imitators. As far as the Pharisees were concerned in Jesus' time, Jesus said to do what they say and not what they do. However, for a spiritual father, we are to set the example for our children. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, it says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's not... Do as they say, not as they do, but rather do as they teach, give, say, and do. Do as they do, but do as they teach, do as they give, do as they say, and do as they do. And it's not just what they think is right. You imitate. So it's not just do as I do. Everybody imitate me just because... I'm superior in my ways. It's imitate me as I imitate Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter eleven, verse 1. But it's not just there. Paul just doesn't use it here and in 1 Corinthians. He also says it in Galatians chapter 4, verse 12, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 7 and 9. Because this is a common theme. It may be the most pit, um, the epitome of themes for the spiritual father. A spiritual father is someone to imitate as they imitate Christ. Now I'm going to take a sidebar here because some of you have a problem with authority, and that is a big problem. I've seen it pronounced in recent history since the baby boomers. We don't have any here in this, right here, right now. But they were taught to speak out against the man, Right? against their parents, against the status quo. Why? Because they were corrupt, and the young generation then knew better. Even with race relations now, I see posts on how young people ought to educate your bigoted parents or your grandparents. The attitude now is that you have no need for authority over your life because you know best, or more simply, you are the best. You know that this is you. You know that you are who I am talking about because you are hard of hearing when it comes to what others have to say. You don't take correction easily. Sure, you have this false humility down-packed, right? Oh, I'm not perfect. I'm also a sinner, puge. But you are quick to condemn and to criticize oh, I don't like him. What do you know about him? What do you know about him? Is, There's is this incredible theologian that supported, in recent days, an incredible theologian that supported a political candidate that I did not support. And this is just a personal testimony of mine. It was tempting for me then to dismiss him altogether just simply because he did not support a political candidate I did not particular in particular support his works everything don't you see how crazy that is that's insane you know God has set up people of authority over us in almost every every aspect of our life work family church but also government How you respond to them shows you how you honor God. In the church, God has set up pastors and elders for you to imitate as they imitate Christ. But not only that, you are also called to be people who others should imitate. People outside this church, when they see you, they should see you like, whoa, that's a Christian. Your life should be something you want others to emulate. Your excuse cannot be, ah, Pugh does that because he's the pastor. So I, the pastor, am not worth emulating or imitating? So who are you really imitating then? If I imitate Christ. This is the epitome of being a spiritual father. Someone to imitate. And we can see that because of verse 17. That is why I sent you Timothy. And you might be like, what? That's why imitate me. That's why I sent you Timothy. What, what, what's going on here? My beloved and faithful children in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in, everywhere in every church. That's why I sent you Timothy. Imitate me. Wouldn't you think the next line would be, Imitate me. That's why I'm coming to you so you could see me, right? But it's, Imitate me. That's why I sent you Timothy. This is an illustration of being a spiritual father. Do you know how good of a father my father is? Like me, personally. Do you know how good of a father my father is as you look at me? Do you know how good of a father someone is? You look at their child. Why? Why? And if you think about it, this makes sense completely. Because children are different from other groups of people in your life even if you have intense discipleship in smaller groups. You can go out, and you can, like many of you, physically, but I'm talking spiritual here, you can put on a mask, right? You can go out and you can put on a mask. You can go out and put on a teacher mask. You can go out and put on a lawyer mask, a police officer mask, a competent worker mask. But masks are just what they are. They're that. They're masks. You can't keep them on all day, And guess where you take it off. Guess who's there looking at your face when you take off the mask. Studying your every facial expression while you stare at the TV like that. Timothy was someone Paul considered as a spiritual child. That means he knew how Paul not only did his quiet times and studied the word, but also how he woke up, how he prepared food, how he ate, what kind of clothes he wore. That's something you can't hide from your children. You can't keep the mask on all the time. Because when you take it off, guess who's watching? If you want to be a good parent, you need to be a good parent at home as well as when you're outside. That being said, you might say, that's easier said than done, right? That's easier said than done. However, this is what we are called to be and do as a spiritual father. We imitate Christ not just when we're at church with our church masks on. We imitate Christ all the time, and we are urged to ask others to follow us. And children are the people that you beget. Children are an extension of you and your life. This is why Paul didn't need to be everywhere all the time. He could just send Timothy, and it would be just the same. By the way, this is also a very opposite mentality of prosperity gospel preachers. Prosperity gospel preachers believe because they alone have the anointing, that they need to get that $13 million jet because I need to be here, I need to be there. People need to hear this anointing. They do a lot of this. But, but please give your donation of $2,222 so that I can get the jet that I need so that I can share the gospel with the world. Paul didn't need a plane. They didn't exist back then, but he didn't need a plane. He just sent Timothy. And when Timothy comes, this is what he says, when Timothy comes, You'll see my ways. Number five, he teaches. At the end of verse 17, Paul says that he teaches what he teaches to all churches. It's not this principle here and a complete opposite one at another place. He teaches these things everywhere in the church. These things that Paul is saying aren't an exception, demands that he's making These aren't just exceptions, like exceptional demands that he's making to the Corinthian church. It's everything, everywhere. This means a spiritual father must be able to reproduce it, live it, but also teach it. And you cannot teach what you do not know. One great way a father can know if he really knows his stuff is when his kids ask him questions, right? when his kids ask him questions. Uh, Dad, where is God? And you might answer, um, he's everywhere, son. How can he be everywhere? Is he just really fat? And you'd be like, uh, no, he doesn't have a body. But wait, Jesus did, and he's God. I mean, he does. And then you're trapped by your four-year-old, right? I had been fortunate enough to start off my pastoral tract by teaching really young children, then youth, then college, then adults, and now to leading this church. Some of you actually have been with me through all of those tracks. But teaching children humbles you because you struggle to communicate the things that you could have just covered yourself with intellectual dress, This is why I really love children's catechisms. And this is why we are focusing on catechizing our children in our church. They help you teach children, but also the parents and teachers who are teaching it, the foundational things of the Christian faith. For instance, question one of this catechism is, who made you? The answer is God. Question two, what else did God make? God made all things. Question three, why did God make you and all things? Answer, for his own glory. Question four, how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. Why ought you, to, uh, why ought you glorify God? Because he made me and takes care of me. It starts off with those kind of catechismic questions all the way to like even questions like, can anyone go to heaven with this sinful nature? The answer, no. Our hearts must be changed before we can be fit for heaven. Question, what is a changed, change of heart called? Answer, regeneration. Question, who can change a sinner's heart? Answer, the Holy Spirit alone. And this helps us become a better teacher because we don't simply love the words that make us sound intellectual, but we actually love the truth behind the words. And this is what St. Augustine said. And it is one of the distinctive features of good intellects not to love words, but the truth in words. For of what service is a golden key if it cannot open what we want it to open? Or what objection is there to a wooden one if it can, seeing that to open what is shut is all we want? What's worth more? What's worth more, a golden key or a wooden key? And you might think, at first glance, the golden one is worth more. However, if there is a door with all the treasures that you seek, all the things that you need behind that door and the golden one doesn't fit but the wooden one fits and when you turn that door opens, what's worth more? And this is why we ought to love the truth behind the words and if you know the truth behind the words, you can teach it. And this is where we circle all the way back to the first point, which is my final point. It's really number one, but it's an elaboration. Verse 18, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but power. There were people that were saying, oh, Paul isn't coming himself. He's sending that kid Timothy. He must be scared of us. We don't have anything to worry about. We don't have anything to fear. Let's continue to oppose him and his teaching. Paul clarifies that he is going to come and the only thing that would stop him would be the Lord, not because he's afraid to deal with them In their arrogance. And in the end of verse 19, he gives a one-two punch. You can talk a big game, but can you actually fight? You can't talk really well. You can talk really well. Excuse me. You can talk really well, but do you have the power to live out what you say? Do you have the power to live it out? The things that you think you're teaching. I know this stuff. I know this stuff. Are you living it? Do you have the power? Because the gospel isn't merely telling people what to do. It empowers people to do it. So it doesn't matter if you can just only speak well. The question is, can you do it? Do you have the power? There are people who speak first without weighing the consequences And I have faced this many times, not just as a pastor, but just as a human being. But many times as a pastor, people will come up to me and they would share, Oh, I'm not ready to date. If this sounds familiar to you because you guys are, it is you. I'm sorry. But, uh, Oh, I'm not ready to date. I'm a sinner. I need to get my life right first. I won't date someone for a long time. Trust me. Two months later, they're dating. I remember what you said. I remember what you said. (laughs) You don't have power. You can talk a good game, but you never get on that field because you and I both know you don't have the goods. The trouble with the Corinthian church is that knowing the good they ought to do, they did evil. And so the final point, which circles back to the first, is this. A spiritual father disciplines what do you wish shall i come to you with a rod or with love in a gent a spirit of gentleness it's like when a teacher or parent and i've heard many young parents say this are you going to do this and get in trouble many years ago the word trouble was replaced with spanked right are you going to do this and get spanked or are you not going to do this are you going to put away the toys or are you going to get a spanking and this is how they ended. It's your choice. And then you see the kid just staring at you. You know why the kid stares at you? Because the kid is trying to call your bluff. It's like, I wonder if they will spank. No. And then you just, you know, just to show them that you can. You, you know, I guess you won't hear, but <laughs> discipline must be carried out by the church. This isn't an optional thing in the Christian life, but detrimental. And this detrimental thing is gone missing when sin starts to creep in. That's when you know your house will be destroyed if you don't root out the rot. Your family will be destroyed if you don't root out the rebellion. The church will be destroyed if you don't root out the sin. If we have to use a rod... We use a rod. But when all is said and done, when all is said and done, you know this must be done and done out of love. This must be done and it must be done out of love because discipline's aim is to save. And next week we'll continue to learn about this idea of church discipline and why it's imperative in the life of the church. But discipline's aim is to save. So the spiritual father bears his heart to his beloved children. Paul bears his heart to the Corinthian church. I admonish you because I love you. I want you to change your evil behavior and turn and follow my example. Paul's deep love for the church led him to admonish, teach, and even discipline them. So they can also, like him... Get on to spiritually reproducing, making disciples. And my prayer is, oh, that we at CGS would all become spiritual fathers. Oh, that we would become spiritual fathers. That we could live the way the Bible teaches us so that we can truly live in joy and in fullness that is promised to us by God. Oh, that we would all become spiritual fathers. Let's pray.